You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Carol Harridan. Dr. Harridan is Vice President of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we're talking to her today from London, England. Dr. Harridan has a special interest in quality of care and patient safety. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Could you tell me a little bit about the focus and vision of IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement? Yes, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, its main vision and its main goal is to improve the health and health care of people around the world. We began with a singular vision around improving health care in the United States. We now have a more global vision. We work in the U.K., that's partly what I'm doing here. I'll spend two years managing our portfolio of safety and quality work with the NHS in the U.K., but we work in South Africa, in Ghana, and in all of Sub-Saharan Africa. We've worked in South America in uh, multidrug-resistant TB and HIV areas. We do a great deal of work in the deprived areas of the country. We're doing a lot of work right now in improving chronic disease outcomes with Native Americans in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We um, are a not-for-profit who spend uh, all of their time and all of their energy focusing on improving healthcare systems so that patients can heal and providers can find joy. Is this a movement for change and collaboration, really a change in culture, or is it something else? I think it's a change in culture and a change in capability, and perhaps even a change in will. We think about improvement at the Institute as a, as a trilogy of will, ideas, and execution. But in order to accomplish those, all of those, you have to be inside a culture that will accept them. So right now, we know that in certain areas, we're lacking in will. And that means we we simply don't really believe that care could be as good as it can be in other areas. So we might see an individual organization or two make some quite astounding progress in the care of patients with diabetes, let's say, or with congestive heart failure or in areas of patient safety. And we tend to think of them as outliers, as though there's something special about them that surely that wouldn't happen for us. If we did similarly, we couldn't do it. There's something special about that hospital or that healthcare organization. And so we do a good deal of work on first building will. So helping people understand there's an enormous gap between where we currently work and where we could work in the results we get now and the results we could get if we worked in a particular way. If we learned from those places that are doing it best. So building will is an incredibly important part. So you have to believe you can do it or else really there's no point in giving you the five-point improvement plan if you don't have any belief. So we spend a lot of time working on belief. There are a lot of people out there who do believe and yet they're not really sure what to do next. So I guess the second piece is the notion of superior ideas. That is what changes can you make today that will improve the outcomes of the patients that you serve or the healthcare system that you're working in. And we get those at the Institute. We don't develop those ideas for the most part. We do have an innovation engine, and we do actually do a fair amount of work in innovation, and it's an important piece of our work. But there's so much known out there. There's no point in innovating in areas where the best is already known. We have people out there in this world making tremendous and important contributions, and they're doing it all the time, and we aren't learning from them. We don't have a similar uptake 
We don't feel the angst we might feel if we were in business, let's say, and one company were getting way ahead of ours. I think we'd be quite put off by that and say, my goodness, we can't afford this. We've got to get right up there and produce at that level. In healthcare, we don't seem to feel that same angst. We read the reports. We look at what others are doing. And while we applaud it, we don't feel similarly compelled to make those changes ourselves. So that's part of the will. Now, as far as the changes go, we try to take what others are doing. So we always reading, always we have very wide search patterns, lots of relationships to find out who's doing the best work. And when we find somebody who may contact us and say, wow, we've been able to do this, this is great, we immediately call them or go and see them or both and say, tell us more about how you did this. And we study what they've done and we put it out there and say, you know, here's somebody who's been able to make these changes. Would anyone else like to try it? We put it together in a thing called the change package which simply says, hey, make these changes, we're doing it this way, and measure it this way, and you ought to see an improvement. Others have, and you should too. You mentioned people. Is it the patient? Is it boards? Is it clinicians that you have to get to buy into these changes? Well, I think first and foremost, it's clinicians and boards as well. Uh, the boards have a unique responsibility to ask the right questions, and that is, are we learning? How are we learning? How are we a learning organization? How do we know where we stand? Are we the best? Who is the best? Where are we against them? Typically, boards get offered benchmarking information. And in truth, benchmarking is often in mediocre in, in the extreme. So, in fact, you don't look any worse than the others. But nobody looks toward the best. So we're actually not all that interested in benchmarking. We're much more interested in saying, how do we compare to the best in class, which is very different than a benchmarking exercise, just pretty much saying we're, we're hanging around the middle. So it's really important that the board asks the right question, and that is why are we here versus uh, who's doing the best work and how do we stack up against them? So asking the right question and building some will around that, but that doesn't change clinician behavior. Clinicians have to really believe they can change, they need to change, that their care isn't what it could be. So it's both. It's clinicians and it's the board and leadership. As far as patients go, I think it's going to take a while before patients uh, unless they're enormously literate, are probably not going to be able to wade through all of the clinical indicator data to say, gee, this is, in fact, the best clinical indicator. Uh, how do you, my clinician, stand up against this? How do you, my hospital, stand up against this? I think that's going to be a long time coming. As a researcher in the quality of care, what are the tools that you use to collect data so that you then can put this into a form of, as you say, changes. I think you mentioned five-piece changes. I mentioned a change package, actually. Well, what we look at are those things that people are doing that actually improve care. So, for instance, if we're talking about reducing ventilator-acquired pneumonia, we know that there are four things that are important in reducing ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Now, that's been known. That's all level one RCT-established evidence. But why are we still seeing ventilator-acquired pneumonia if we know this? Well, we looked at that at the Institute and said, okay, so here's all the level one evidence. What can we do? How can we put this together in a way that creates reliability? That's a science that's very uh, old for engineering but very new for healthcare is this whole notion of reliability. So how do we put this together? So, in fact, we did some innovation work with a number of hospitals, and we said, you know, how can we put something in place that in fact makes these changes occur every day without someone remembering to order them because we know memory and vigilance are the weakest forms of improvement. So instead, we tried a number of things, and one we found was this, and that is we make what we call the best care the default. 
so that every patient that's placed on a ventilator automatically gets those bundle elements of uh, head of the bed up, sedation vacation, PUD prophylaxis, and DVT prophylaxis. They get those every single time. Now, if you don't want them as a clinician, which is absolutely a right, you have to order that they not be given. But we're going to default to the best standard every time. When we saw that, that, that was enormously tractable. People started doing it. We started seeing huge reductions of much better care of ventilated patients, big reductions in ventilator-acquired pneumonia and other complications. So it's that kind of marrying of level one evidence with a reliable approach that allows, I guess I'd call it sort of stickiness, allows it to work within a clinicians, the way clinicians work, that makes the changes uh, in the change package. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and today I'm, I'm discussing improving patient care and safety with Dr. Carol Herodin, Vice President of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. You know, you mentioned a word bundle. Is this just a checklist uh, that we offer people, or does it include something more than that? It's an excellent question. On the surface, it looks like a checklist, but here's the difference, I think, between a bundle and a checklist. When we initially put these four pieces together, when we talked to clinicians about them, we had 13 organizations who were working on improving outcomes in clinical care, in critical care, rather, as an innovation project. They pretty much looked at those and said, oh, ho-hum, we know about those, we have those as part of our checklist. We asked them to go back and take a look at how reliably these are occurring with patients, and, and they came back to the next meeting, and they said, well, just as we thought, quite reliable. So, in fact, head of the bed up is, you know, 70% of the time, and and when you look at DPT prophylaxis, we're at 90%. But reliability is multiplicative, not additive. So when we actually looked at how many patients get all four, because all four are clinically indicated, not two, not three, the highest of those 13 organizations, and these were great health care organizations in this country, the highest was 13%. So when we started to look at the bundle, we said, no, we've got to think about this as an all-or-nothing measure. So the bundle is uh, are a number of evidence-based changes that happen. This is going to sound a little odd, but and I guess I would say in the same time and space continuum. So we want you to be able to say, yes, today this patient got all that is required and all that is necessary. When people put together a checklist, Often a checklist includes many important but not evidence-based things, so we spend a great deal of time arguing about the what and not the how. With a bundle, you should never be arguing about the how. The how is all evidence-based. The what is what we're going to argue about. How do you get these practices into place so that they are reliably done every time and that you're you're measuring it in what we call an all-or-nothing manner and that all changes occur? So you either get 100% or zero every day for each patient. How about accountability? When you have a list, there's always that worry that at the bedside somebody will think somebody else is doing number one and two, and I'm doing three and four. How do you deal with that and to, to prevent errors? Excellent question. You have to build it in. Part of reliability is building it into the habits and patterns of, of work every day. If it becomes one more thing to do at the end of the day or it is something that is about shared accountability, you know, I don't know when I'm supposed to do it or when you're supposed to do it, things fall apart very quickly. So what we, in fact, do is we build the bundle elements into multidisciplinary rounds, so when, which are always done in intensive care units. 
So when the multidisciplinary round is done and the clinicians are talking about the care of the patient, they review the bundle elements right there. So there's what we call a redundancy. So we know from the very first step in reliability is simply to get the patient put on those elements, and that's done through the default. Now, once the patient has them ordered, that doesn't mean they're done, obviously. The next thing is to be certain that they're built into daily care. So any algorithms, any guidelines they have, they're built in there, but also they're reviewed at multidisciplinary rounds so that any time somebody falls out, it's picked up that day, not two days later or the next day when it's not helpful. I think this is looking at systems that need to be continued to be developed, and I'm, I'm glad to have talked to you today about this. I really want to thank you for being with us. We've been talking to Dr. Carol Harridan, Vice President of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in London, England. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.